a Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast featuring glimpses of Kansas history from documents in the Library and Archives collections. Samuel J. Reeder of La Harpe, Illinois, began keeping his daily diary at the age of 11 after reading the journals of the Lewis and Clark expedition. He was a self-trained artist as well and frequently interspersed drawings and watercolors of events with his text. Reeder continued to write and draw faithfully throughout his adult life, so when he moved to Kansas Territory in May 1855 with his sister and brother-in-law, Eliza and Matthias Camp Doris, his diaries became a wholly unique record of daily events in the era leading up to Kansas statehood. During the spring and summer of 1856, violent encounters between pro-slavery and anti-slavery advocates in Kansas Territory continued. On September 13, 1856, General James Lane of Lawrence heard that pro-slavery men were committing outrages in the vicinity of Grasshopper Falls in Jefferson County. He quickly recruited a ragtag militia of free state men from the area and marched to intercept the pro-slavery troops at Hickory Point, north of Oskaloosa. The pro-slavery government was the officially recognized government of Kansas at that time, and the troops Lane pursued included about 40 South Carolina soldiers under the command of Captain H.A. Lowe, in addition to other men the Free Staters characterized as border ruffians. One of the men who joined General Lane that September day was Samuel Reeder, who at the time was 20 years old and farming near Indianola in northern Shawnee County. The excerpts from Reader's diary describing the confrontation between Lane's militia and the pro-slavery forces at Hickory Point paint a vivid picture of what it was like to be a settler embroiled in bleeding Kansas politics 150 years ago. After a hasty breakfast, I accoutred myself with powder horn and bullet pouch, shouldered my trusty rifle, and parted from friends at home for the excitement and perils of partisan warfare. There was some opposition to my going, but I could not be prevailed upon to stay. My sister frequently sang a little song that was well calculated to dampen the ardor of a young seeker after military glory. It was something like this. My father was a farmer good, with corn and beef in plenty. I mowed and hoed and held the plow, and longed for one and twenty. For I was of a martial turn and scorned the lowing cattle. I burned to wear a uniform, hear drums and see a battle. My birthday came, my father urged, but stoutly I resisted. My sister wept, my mother prayed, but off I went, enlisted. They marched me on through wet and dry, with tunes more loud than charming, while lugging knapsack, box, and gun was harder work than farming. We met the foe, the cannons roared, the crimson tide was flowing. The frightful death groans filled my ears, I wished that I was mowing. I lost my leg, the foe came on, they had me in their clutches. I moaned in prison till the peace, and hobbled home on crutches. Whether this song was sung to me on this particular morning or not, I am not able to say. Sung or unsung, it certainly proved ineffective. Such is the perversity of youth. Reader had also assembled with the militia on August 30, 1856, to defend the town of Indianola in Shawnee County from an expected attack by pro-slavery forces. A battle had been avoided that day, but Indianola was sacked ten days later. This time, Reader fully expected to see action. We were soon on the road again, and towards midday, reached the brow of the hill overlooking Hickory Point from the west, and some 300 yards or more distant from it. I now learned, somewhat to my astonishment, that the men we were looking for still held the fort. 
Would they really fight us? Hickory Point was not a town. It consisted of a double log house of very respectable size for those days, a log blacksmith shop, and a few sheds and outbuildings. They were on the north side of the road, nearly at the bottom of the hill, and just west of a small stream of water having a general course from south to north. A few stunted trees and bushes fringed its banks south of the road, while to the north of the house, quite a cluster of trees could be seen. From where we stood, we had a magnificent view of the surrounding country. We could see the military road after it crossed the stream, winding its way up the opposite slope, and appearing on the crests of successive ridges until lost in the distance to the east. We were safe from a sudden surprise. General Lane soon made his dispositions for the attack. The cavalry were formed to the south of the road. A party of 10 or 12 mounted men crossed the stream to the south of the house and occupied an elevation about 400 yards southeast of Hickory Point. I think Captain Mitchell was in command of this party. The sensations and emotions of soldiers waiting in line for the signal that may possibly usher in a harvest of death have been often described and are as various, perhaps, as are the temperaments of men themselves. For myself, I felt almost as if it were a dream. A feeling of unreality of my position benumbed a latent dread of possible wounds and death, while a sense of duty, mistaken though it might have been, a hatred of our foes, a natural curiosity to participate in actual battle, pride, and the fear of ridicule and disgrace. All these contributed in keeping me at my post. In common parlance, I would go with the crowd. General Lane was in the saddle, less than 30 yards from where I stood. By his side was the sturdy Whipple, looking every inch a soldier. No doubt he felt in his true element, and was rejoicing in the prospect of approaching battle. Other officers of lesser note were with them. Some of the militia exchanged fire with the pro-slavery men, but the rifles and muskets they had scrounged together couldn't penetrate the fort's defenses. Though some men carried Sharp's rifles, the southern soldiers had rifles superior even to those. One man and several horses were wounded before General Lane cautiously pulled back his troops to wait for cannon and reinforcements to arrive. We soon resumed our backward march. Our reflections were perhaps not as pleasant as we could wish. It was disheartening to be obliged to retrace our steps over the same road we had that morning traveled with such bright hopes and anticipations. Our falling back was sufficient evidence of itself that we had been thwarted in our undertaking. Sharp's rifles were now a little below par, and our idol, Jim Lane, had descended a step or two from his pedestal. For my own part, individually, I was not at all elated over my performances on the field. I had fired not a single shot for Free Kansas, had flinched at the first hostile bullet, been reprimanded by my commanding officer, and through an unfortunate hesitation, had failed to witness, to its full extent, the most important event in the day's proceedings. Thus hungry and thirsty, I sat, chewing the cud of bitter reflections, as we traveled along the dusty military road for our night's camping ground. Night came. The moon lacked but a few days of being full. The sky was clear, the air dry and warm. It was a delightful evening for a soldier's bivouac, and I was looking around for a suitable place to spread my blanket, and a rumor crept in among us that tomorrow's battle was off, Governor Geary was up and doing. The terrible U.S. dragoons were to take the field, and we would have two enemies to fight instead of one. It was not to be thought of for a moment. 
we still felt a respect for the soldiers of our common country, even when they appeared in the guise of active enemies and oppressors. We were already denounced by the pro-slavery administration as traitors and outlaws, and an armed conflict with the federal troops would have proved our utter ruin. I was told long afterwards that Governor Geary sent word to General Lane on this Saturday evening, requesting him to disband his men, as our presence as an armed force embarrassed him in the discharge of his official duties. Lane immediately sent a messenger to Colonel Harvey at Lawrence, countermanding the order for a field gun and reinforcements, sent the infantry back to Topeka, and started himself for Nebraska with the mounted men the same night. We were in the wagons and ready to start about 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. The general came out to us and stood in the moonlight as he gave us a few words at parting. He ended by saying, I'll give you a chance at them some other time. It is unnecessary to say that this promise was never fulfilled. We started and went our different ways. I left Whipple and Mitchell and many of my comrades never to see them again, for this was the last day I bore arms in the Free State cause. Fate seemed against us, our striving had come to naught. So perished our hope of the morrow's battle, with its roar of cannon, gallant charges, and Free State victory. With our backs a second time to the foe, we pursued our dreary, sleepy way back to Topeka. Save the dull rumble of the wheels and the driver's voice urging on his team, a cheerless silence prevailed. Several times we were halted and formed in line to repel some fancied attack. They were all groundless alarms, but they served to awaken us for the time being. It seemed almost impossible to keep my eyes open, and several times I nearly escaped falling from the wagon. I reached home about 2 or 3 o'clock Sunday morning, and a few minutes afterwards, all the stirring events of the day were blotted from my recollection in the oblivion of sleep, deep and dreamless. It was needed. In little less than 30 hours, I had been transported a distance of 70 miles and had witnessed the most exciting of all human events, an armed conflict. The Battle of Hickory Point actually took place the next day, after the militia members had returned home. In the end, the anti-slavery forces were unsuccessful. Sunday, September 14, 1856. The day was far advanced when I awoke. A warm, clear day, some breeze, a thermometer 90 degrees in the shade at one time in the afternoon. On this eventful day was fought what I had generally been in the habit of calling the second day's battle of Hickory Point. Colonel Harvey attacked the rangers with musketry and artillery, but failed to dislodge them. After some loss on both sides, he withdrew, and nearly all of his command were afterwards captured by the U.S. troops. In 1906, Samuel Reeder used his diaries as the basis for his autobiography. While his territorial fighting experience was limited to preliminary skirmishes, during the Civil War he served with the 2nd Kansas Militia in Price's Raid and also participated in the Battle of the Big Blue on October 22, 1864. After the war, in 1867, Reeder married a woman from La Harpe, Illinois, Elizabeth Smith. They had one daughter, Elizabeth, who was with him when he died peacefully at his home in North Topeka on September 15, 1914, at the age of 78. This has been A Kansas Memory, a Kansas State Historical Society podcast. The documents used in this podcast are part of Territorial Kansas Online a virtual repository of primary sources from the Bleeding Kansas era. 
The URL for the website is www.territorialkansasonline.org. Thank you.